this, this, the importance of grammatical interpretation, your favorite thing in the world, grammar. Uh, Got to do it because grammar is, if you, if you never thought grammar was necessary for, you know, what, you know it's what you tell your parents, I'm not going to do this in real life. I'm not going to diagram sentences. Really? If you're going to study the Bible, uh, you need to know what the things in those sentences mean, verbs and adjectives and conjunctions, all those things. So, uh, one of the things they made us do when I went to seminary, the first thing that you had to do before they would even accept you in a seminary is you had to pass an English grammar test. And so I had to study, I knew that was coming. So I studied up because either that or you got to take a semester long class. You had to pay money to take a class to learn grammar, diagramming sentences, understanding clauses, phrases, and words. Uh, and now you're not, you know, we're not planning on going to seminary. I hope you all are all planning to understand scripture properly. So grammatical interpretation is necessary for that, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. So I'm going to, we're going to do that up until lunchtime. After lunch, we're going to we're going to you know, do some activities, um, uh, and that has more more static activities, not you know throwing the ball down the stairs, which is wonderful, by the way. Uh, I just think it's a great way to break in our new foyer. It's you know this is it's it's a it's a youth building is what this is. They think it's like a hoity-toity church building, but it isn't really. It's actually a youth building, um, so we can use it as we need. Don't break stuff. I'm not giving you permission to to treat things poorly, but that's a great use of that, I just think, personally. Uh, so well done on that, uh, and no one's been hurt except Josh a little bit. Um, Joshua. Uh, so that, all, that's, all that's fine and good. That's, that's a good thing. Uh, so you know, hardcore for the next hour or so, uh, then we'll lighten things up a little bit right after lunch, and then we're going to work on our study portion. Now we're going to start studying passages, and what we're working towards is this afternoon, you as a table group are going to use all the blue letter Bible tools that I'm going to give you to study a passage, and then you're going to come up with a presentation. Right? Now you don't have to preach. You're not going to get up and you know, uh, use the lectern. But, so that's where we're headed. So if you were wondering, what are we going to do with all this? Well, I'm actually going to have you try to take a passage, use all of these principles, and then come up with a presentation for us uh, and explain to us what that particular passage meant. So that's where we're headed. Uh, so I hope, hopefully you'll be paying even more attention now because like, man, I got I to do something with this thing. All right, so let's talk about uh, bridging the grammar gap. A uh, couple quotes here. Um, uh, one of the hallmarks of the Reformation. What, what was the Reformation? Somebody tell me what happened in the Reformation. My history majors. Yes, Sean. Okay, that is true. It was a return to purity or the, or the truth of biblical doctrine. What, what was going on? What had happened that kept biblical doctrine from, from being properly understood for the 1,500 years before then? Uh, Tristan. Okay, that's true. And so what they did was they kept it from the language of the common people. Right, what else did the Roman Catholic, and this is, again, Catholic, Catholic by itself just means universal church. It started out that way, the universal church coming out of the apostles. Churches were established all over the world. But then it turned into a particular religion called the Roman Catholic Church. So they began to oversee it with a heavy hand. Said, yeah, look, we're only going to do the mass or, or do the teaching of the word. It wasn't really that. But the celebration of the Lord's Supper along with any teaching that went on, we're just going to do that in either Latin or Greek when most people didn't know Latin or Greek. So that was one thing. It removed it from the language of the common people. What else did the Roman Catholic Church do that kept people from understanding the scriptures? Uh, oh, David. Yeah, we mentioned that last night. And in fact, they wouldn't even allow translations of the scriptures into other languages, so they would force the people, they would force them. Yay, big hand for Joanna. Uh, so they actually 
they, 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 they force the people by keeping the scriptures only in their own hands. All right, so you got, guys, you got to remember all these, I mean, we have, you got Blue Letter Bible. You look on here, and by the way, it's pretty cool. They only have generally good translations on Blue Letter Bible. But if you go on your U version, and we'll see this in a little bit uh, after lunch, you can get every weird wacko translation out there uh, that don't, I mean, they don't have anything to do with the Bible largely. But you guys, the, the, the Roman Catholic Church and, and the removal of the Bible from the people, then again, as we said, as we said last night, if the Roman Catholic theologians then would interpret the Bible and say, this is what it means. But the problem is that got shaped by church pressure. Pretty soon, certain things the church was doing or, or needed to have happen, they would find those things in scripture and then begin to teach them to the people. And the people didn't know. They had no ability to actually look at the scriptures to determine if that was true. And you just have no idea how big a deal that is because you get to read the scriptures all the time. And yet, here's the question, do you actually read the scriptures? Every time I ask someone, you know, how, how your, we call them spiritual disciplines. How about delightful pursuits of godliness? How about the wonderful pursuit of knowing the heart and mind of God so that you can be, the image of God is reflected in you? That's Bible reading. That's what you're doing. And I always ask people, I'm like, well, I'm not reading like I should. Why? Why? One thing for life and godliness. You probably certainly right as the Reformation was happening, which is really when then the, the people we call the reformers, uh, you had Calvin and, and Luther, Luther kicks it off, and Calvin, guys like Zwingli, uh, and a variety of others, you know, Wycliffe way before him, and, and who saw others. They, they, they were returning the Bible to the hands of the common people, and the people were hungry for the Bible. It's not my intent to give you the full history class, but then even right after that in the English Protestant Reformation, I mean, you had fathers of families desperate to be able to teach their children the word of God because they couldn't get it in any of the churches and because the churches were dominated by Roman Catholic theology, they would, they would hide Bibles under their chairs because then the, the Roman Catholic church would come around and if you had a Bible in, in a translation that could be read that wasn't in Latin or the, the, you, know, you even had one at all, they would haul the dad off to prison and sometimes the children, try to get them to confess, kill them. You're probably aware of some of those things, but, but they had they had a, I watched it, uh, went to an exhibit one time where they had a special chair that the dad would sit in and uh, he'd be reading the Bible and the, you know, the people would come, the Roman Catholic um, police would come, knock on the door, and there was a special place underneath the chair for him to hide the Bible because these things were big, bulky things. They weren't the little you know, pocket Bibles you have. And showed the picture where you would, the, the Bible hiding chair. And so he'd hide and they'd just be sitting around as a family and then they'd leave, out comes the Bible because they were desperate for the word. And yet your, your dad does family devotions and you're like... I said, I hope that's not what happens. But too often, that's the case. These are life-giving words of Scripture. Uh, and, and I just want to, so if you learn nothing from our hermeneutics class, except that the Bible is the inspired word of God, inerrant, authoritative, and necessary for life and godliness, and you are inspired then, uh, not in the biblically inspired version, but in the, in, in the joyful, exuberant to, to listen to the word more and to read the word more, I've accomplished my purpose. I mean, I hope you don't sit here and go, ah, grammar, that's boring, so uh, I don't want to read the Bible. Right. That's my... Soapbox, I'll hop off it and we'll do the definition of grammatical interpretation. So you gotta know the meaning of words, that's first. Okay? If you don't know what words mean, then how can you ever be able to understand the Bible? By the way, uh, Roy Zuck, who wrote a great book on biblical interpretation, he said the hallmark of the Reformation was a return to the historical grammatical interpretation of scripture. This was in direct opposition to the approach to the Bible that had been in vogue for hundreds of years. The view that ignored the normal meaning of the words in their grammatical sense and let words and sentences mean whatever the readers wanted them to mean. It's so fascinating. We're returning to that now. We were like, oh, postmodernism, nobody believes anything is true and whatever you want to mean, it means. Because that's been around forever. 
that allegorical interpretation we talked about. So even, the, even, even when they could get a hold of the Bible, so often what people were doing with it and the priests and others, they were just looking at it and saying, well, I think it means this, right? And, and the, this symbol means this, and this sign means this, and this type means this, and, and this doesn't actually mean what it actually says. Again, Zuck, God has conveyed his truth in written form using words and sentences that are to be understood by man in their normal plain sense. The better we understand the grammar of scripture and the historical setting in which those sentences were first communicated, the better we understand the truths God intended to convey to us. All right, so, many words. Uh, and then the etymology. Now, do you guys have something else on your, or is this, because I'm looking at, is that, that's B, maybe more. That you, it starts right there? Okay, all right, so I skipped it. Ah, oh, there we go, that's why. All right, so you're like, what is going on? What is he talking about? The nature of inspiration, right? That, the reason that we need grammatical interpretation is because when God inspired the Bible, he inspired it in words. We've talked about that. In words, phrases, sentences. Could he have done it another way? Yes. Could he have just simply left it so that everyone who was born, God communicated to them directly to their heart? He could have done that. He didn't do that. He, he caused men to write the scriptures down. So that's why we have to have grammatical interpretation. The goal then of exegesis, that is, remember that whole process of using hermeneutics, of understanding the meanings of the words, of then looking at scripture to interpret scripture and coming up with a meaning. And we want to understand what does scripture say? What does scripture mean by what it says? Again, if you have, if you have the words wrong, like there are, you're missing words, or you insert one word where that word wasn't, that that wasn't a biblical writer wrote, because you're dead metaphorically speaking, right? You're not going to be able to know the truth of the Bible if you insert wrong words or if you are missing words that are supposed to be there. There's a whole nother class that I had to give you on scriptural preservation. That is how the manuscripts have been copied and handed down so that what we have is a, is a mirror reflection or a, a true reflection of the originals, right? We, we have confidence in that, even though this guy like Bart Ehrman and others out there, maybe some of your teachers, if you go to a go to a public school, they're saying, well, the Bible's full of errors. It was translated wrongly. It was also preserved wrongly. They copied those things and made lots of mistakes. Well, yeah, there were lots of mistakes made. But if you correlate all of the copying errors and you put them all together, you can come back and find that original manuscript that was there. It's a very technical science, but it's science. So what does scripture mean by what it says? The problem of communication is that with many words come opportunities for misunderstanding. When words are not properly defined, there is much misunderstanding. And words in different languages are even harder to understand, right? So we have to have those people, those scholars, who are able to know what those words meant in Greek and what those words meant in the Greek of the Bible so that we can understand how to interpret them. Texts are not wonderful, bendable, highly amusing toys. They're not gumbies. You can't just take a text and say, I think it means this, I'm gonna twist it to mean that, I think it ought to mean this. Unfortunately, the Roman Catholic Church and many churches, many cults certainly do that. They bend the word to mean what they want it to mean. And you talk to people and they say, well, the scripture says this, or it says this, and that's not the right interpretation. All right, now, the definition of this grammatical interpretation. What does it mean to interpret according to grammar, right? So you need to know and understand the meaning of the words, right? There's something called etymology. That's how words are derived and developed. Where does a word come from, right? When you, so when you say a word like butterfly, what, 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 is, that's, that, what is that? That's two words put together, right? What, what two words? Butter and fly. Does a butterfly have anything to do with butter? No, does it have something to do with fly? 
Well, kind of, right? It flies. All right, so you have to be careful trying to try to, well, where did that come from? And what, what does that actually mean? What are some other, can you think of any interesting words that you're like, what does that actually mean? What's the, what's, how do we get that word? Hot dog. Yeah, you're like, what? It's not a dog. It, you know, so what is that? Any, any, what other words? Like, where did that come from? Tyler. Well, how lazy Susan. That thing that, you know, goes around in a circle. Like, was Susan lazy? What? Yeah. Yeah, hermeneutics, where, where in the world does that come from? All right, what does that actually mean? It's got some Latin roots, so if you look it up, you'll, you'll figure out study of, yeah. Hamburger. hamburger, right, you're like, okay, is it ham? It's not actually ham, all right? A hamburger is, is, is beef, generally, right? Yeah, so lots of words, where did it come from? What's the etymology? What's behind that word? How did it get into our language? Those are fascinating things. Well, we need to understand those things about Greek words as well, or Hebrew words, uh, and then how it works into our English wording as well. Okay, how does an author use a particular word? So who wrote the book of Luke? Luke, who wrote the book of Acts? Also Luke. All right, so you got two books written by Luke and it's fascinating that a lot of the, he uses a lot of the same words. And in general, if you got the same author of two books, they're usually gonna use the words in the same way. So there's a way of studying scripture that has to do with that as well, if we're gonna understand words. So we put those things together. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. There's, there is a, a just a, a a strong tie together of the themes and concepts that he uses. And then, of course, the context, how the words are used in various settings, right? Uh, if I said, I had a ball, what do I mean? It could mean I have a ball. But if I say, man, I had a ball, I had fun, right? Probably doesn't mean I'm, I'm holding one, all right? If I said, I am holding a ball, now it could mean that I'm actually holding one, but what could it also mean? I'm going to have a dance, right? And, and, but you know me, and you're like, it's never going to happen, right? So if I'm holding a ball, I, I have one, right? Some of you would be like, if you're holding a ball, it's like, you know, bring on the 18th century music and, you know, dresses and do our thing. What's, lots of fun, right? Uh, you know, play ball. What's probably happening there? Probably baseball, all right? Could apply to other kinds of balls. And other. So you see, words, you got to know their context, Right? What, is, what, is, what is the context in which the word is placed? The word ball has a different meaning on the basis of the context, even though it's the same word. Well, scripture works the same way. Greek words work the same way. Right? So you've got to know the context. The forms of their words, right? That is verbs. If I say I walk, what do I mean? I, that's present, right? I walk, or I'm currently, I walk. If I say I walked, what, is, what am I saying? I did walk, right? If I say, I'm going to walk, future tense. So guys, you know that. See, by the way, you're pretty good at grammar. Let me just encourage you. Most of you, why? Because you, you know what past, present, future tense are. You're like, I didn't know I was a grammar king. You are. All right, most of you actually recognize kind of innately grammar because you can speak and you generally, even when you use, use words wrongly, you're usually using them in the right place or for the right thing. Right? How words are structured, how the structure affects their meaning. Greek is, by the way, very technical. When it has a verb, it has all these little endings on it that indicate whether it's, it's the ideas as feminine and masculine, there's plural and singular, there's different, the t- different tenses, but they're not are really past, present, future. They've got some different uh, uh, ways of, of conveying time. So all that's pretty structured. And of course, what we need to know is how all those things fit together. So we need a little conjunction junction. Because if you haven't listened to this in a while, you need to. Because these things were so cool uh, because they really convey a lot of truth. By the way, I know this, it drives some of you crazy that this playing 
hang on, it's playing from the front and you're also hearing it. I can't turn this off. Uh, so if it's bothering you, because some of you are sitting on the front row and it's, you're hearing double, I can't, unfortunately, deal with it. Do your best. Now that, that last phrase, I mean, th th these were really brilliantly done. Uh, I can't even imagine that people would even listen to this kind of thing anymore. Uh, it's just because n nobody wants to, you know, that's, that's like you know, grammar. Nobody does that. But guys, wh what do you say at the very end? I'm going to get you there if you're very careful. Guys, if you're interpreting scripture and you don't use your conjunctions properly, you're going to end up in trouble. Ands mean certain things. There's about five different, maybe six or seven different ways in which and is used. It can be connecting two things. It can be completing a thought. It can be explaining something that was just said. And there's whole doctrines that are built around the use of an and or an or or a but, a contrast. Is that contrasting? Is it continuative? Because you need to know those things. And, and even the way you use your own language is pretty important. 
when you're hooking all those things together. So it's just, that was, it's a great reminder of the importance of little words. And when you're doing your study this afternoon, you're going to be looking for the little words. What do they mean? How do they connect things together? What's, what is being connected together? What goes with what? And how are those words explaining things? Things like for. For can be used as a preposition and it's not all that important, right? Uh, it's for the church, right? So, and yet if it's, uh, he went to the cross for us. Ooh, now that's a little different. For, what does that mean? Uh, so that we could get something in our place. Says so the, the doctrine of justification by grace through faith alone, by justification, a, a substitutionary atonement, it's based on the word for. Right? The idea of what it means that he did that for us. Fascinating. So again, these are important things that hopefully you will procure. I mean, particularly if you like grammar, you're like, I always knew that being a grammar nerd was the thing that should drive the world. Well, that's a little strong, but function of words, important. Uh, and then things like subjects, verbs, modifiers, conjunctions, right? Those things we talked about, the relationship of words, that is how they fit together, phrases and clauses, and how you put them together with your conjunctions, and then your sentences, right? So all these things. And guys, clauses are hugely important when you have like that or which. It's, gotta, it's explaining something that's already going on in the sentence, so those are key words for you that you're trying to remember, and all those things mean things when you're looking at the when you're looking at your English translation, and all those are have to be carefully translated from the Greek, which doesn't have those exact same words, and so people have to be very careful. Which is also, as we'll see, why translations are so important. A poor translation communicates the wrong thought, and if you have the wrong thought, you don't have the scripture. You have some, you have a man's thought about what the scripture is supposed to be. All right. So before we do, we need to do one more, since we talked about the importance of verbs, right? Verbs are also known, really the, the, what the verbal or all parts that come after the subject uh, are called what? So it's verb or, what's the, what's the big word for verbs, action, things, and then everything that follows verbs? What's that? The, yeah? Okay, the direct object comes after that, but remember all of this, you know, the things that follow the verbal or are connected to it called the predicate. Right, so that's your, that's your fancy word for verb stuff, predicate. So this, I have a song for you about the predicate and what the predicate actually does and how important it is. And this is probably my all-time favorite. So, uh, and it's called Mr. Morton. So here we go. Yeah, okay, well, there's, yeah, there's some shocking, there's some shocking public displays of affection that happen at the end. Says he does. 
a subject is a noun, that's a person, place, or thing. It's who or what the sentence is about. And the predicate is the verb. That's the action word. That can this subject a Mr. Morton wrote part of the poem. Mr. Morton wrote. We say she can't propose. Oh, yeah, baby. I mean, yeah, Mr. Morton, man. He is a hero. That's why, yeah, Mr. Morton, you made it. Just makes you want to cry. Just it brings a tear right there. Uh, a tear for subjects and verbs, all right? We love, we love grammar. Because who could do anything without subjects and verbs? All right, uh, where were we? Oh, okay, translations. Uh, go ahead now and turn to, well, yeah, turn to your blue letter, go back to your blue letter Bible. We'll talk a little bit about translations. As you do that, I'm gonna show you also, if, again, your parents allow you to do such, oops, wrong thing. If your parents allow you to do such things, not here, but when you go home, um, you can, get a particular Bible program or, or an app called uh, Logos, or Logos um, which means word. It's a Greek word for word. Uh, it's free, the actual app is, and it does all kinds of incredible things for free. It does, does really neat things. You, have to have a, you know, have to have an account and sign up, but you get this free thing. One of the things it does, and, and this, is ba- this will be based on the actual translations you have, so uh, a lot of times you won't have as many as I do, but it will give you this side-by-side comparison. By the way, Blue Letter Bible will do this too. I'll show you in just a minute. It doesn't have the same amount of, of um, translations. But so here's what it does. So uh, the, we're studying Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2 verse 1. So if you read in the NSB, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In the ESV, English Standard Version, it says, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So the different word is what? The, the verb. And the verb was... In NASB, they say determined. In ESV, they thought a better word to use was decided, right? Everything else is the same, so they say that's a 16% difference. Then the NIV says, for I resolved, so they use a different verb, to know nothing while I was with you. So they're really translating what among you means, notice. So in the New American Standard, or the, the New American Standard in ESV, 
you're getting, a, you're getting as close to a word-for-word -word translation as possible. They're looking at the Greek, they're just translating the words and trying to put them together because Greek word order is different than English word order. So they're trying to, get, trying to put them together and just kind of give you the words, all right, in, in ways that make sense. What the NIV is doing, it's called, we might call that a dynamic equivalence translation. There are places where they are actually interpreting the phrase so that there's better understanding. And really, quite honestly, the NIV, as long as you stay with the, what is the, uh, 74, when it goes, it goes bad in, uh, or maybe, yeah, 77. It goes bad after that. It turns into TNIV, and they start replacing all of the uh, pronouns with his or her, uh, replacing his is with her, stuff like that. So don't, don't go with the NIV later. The early NIV, oh, 84, there it is, is pretty good. Uh, resolved, actually resolved is a great verb. It's strong. Right? It's, it's a great way to translate that. And then when it says to know nothing among you, you're like, well, what does that mean? to know nothing among you. I think this gets, gets a good sense, to know nothing while I was with you. So to know nothing among you, you've got to figure out what that actually means. The NIV kind of gives you a, an idea of what that means. Then you have the New King James. And, and by the way, um, this is for another time, but the NASB, the ESV, and the NIV are all based on a certain group of older manuscripts. That is, manuscripts of uh, Greek manuscripts that come from a time older than the New King James. That's based on another set of manuscripts, essentially that come out of the, it's called the Textus Receptus or the, uh, and the, the Latin Vulgate was built on that. So it's a, a newer set of Greek manuscripts that the Roman Catholic Church used uh, early on when they translated the scriptures, when they had Jerome and others translate the scriptures. So really what NASV, NASB, ESV, and NIV are doing is going back to an older set of manuscripts to clarify and correct problems that the Texas Receptus, which is what the King James and the New King James were based on. It is fascinating, I was talking to Brian Joslin last night, he said, no, wait a minute, if you have a New King James, uh, and I didn't pull these examples up, maybe I can show you some after lunch. There's some verses in the New King James that have a whole extra sentence or a whole extra phrase, and you look in the New American Standard, and it's not there. You're like, ooh. I mean, may maybe those in the, and what the King James, if you're a King James only person, which means that you think the King James is the only inspired version, say, look, they removed the New American Standard. They removed, those guys removed sentences from the Bible. But actually what happened was the Textus Receptus, those Greek manuscripts, which were kind of a grid underneath the King James, we looked back and found some older manuscripts, earlier copies, and those, that sentence wasn't in there or that phrase wasn't in there. You're like, ooh, maybe that means everything in the Bible we don't know. There's only a very few of those, and actually this helped us catch a few more of things that had gotten in as the scribes actually made their copying. They'd copied it from another place, or it matches like a cross-reference, they'd matched it in there. Right? So you're seeing different underlying Greek manuscripts for these translations, but notice they're all pretty similar. I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's, that in, that in the vast majority of cases, these four translations, New American Standard, ESV, NIV, and New King James, and really even the King James, except the problem with the King James is the, it's using, it uses old English words. Those old English words are based on good, solid Greek manuscripts. It's not, it's not a bad translation. It's just you can't understand the words. Right? I'll show you a, a King James here in a minute. Uh, but then you have something like the message where it says, I deliberately kept it plain and simple. First, Jesus, who he is, then Jesus and what he did, Jesus crucified. Now again, this, this particular one is, it's not, this isn't all that bad of a translation, but notice the difference. There's a 76% difference between one and the other, right? So this is a paraphrase. 
It is a man who took and, and his basic sense of it, and he then interprets it as, you know, he, he gives the sense. That next verse, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. I wasn't sure how to go about this. I felt totally inadequate. I was scared to death if you want the truth of it. Again, we're getting further and further away from, from again, that's one idea of what he might, what it might have been true. And yet he's giving all kinds of interpretation of what he actually thinks, and then he's just putting it in whatever language, the language he thinks is best applied to today. So it's not a technical translation. And so those are things that you gotta be really careful of. Really, a, a lot of times in the message and in any, well, the message is a particularly bad paraphrase. If you have something like the Living Bible, well, that's, that guy was actually trying to take the language and just make it simple, the actual language of the Bible. What the guy that did the message is, he's trying to translate the sense of it into concepts that we will understand as, as modern people. And his view of what we ought to understand from what the scripture says is very psychologized. It has lots of psychological principles in it. Things like self-esteem and other things we ought to really think much about ourselves. So he translates the Bible through the grid of his own view of culture. So guys, should you, should you be reading a translation like that? Really, no. Because it's, it's not like it's gonna, it's not gonna help you get a better sense for example, the Living Bible, if you've ever seen that, is, is actually, it's a pretty good paraphrase. That is, it's, you, it's generally getting, the guy's really trying to get the sense right, it's just a lot more simple, and you shouldn't be using it to study. But it's generally going to give you a good sense. The message is not. It's going to be giving you a sense that may have nothing to do with what those act, words actually meant, because the writer is rephrasing it and really reinterpreting it through his own grid. It's an interpretational translation. He's making an interpretation, then he's writing what he thinks it means. These other ones, NASB, ESV, NIV, are saying this is what the actual words that the Greek has, and they're placing them into English words that we understand, but they're letting us do the interpretation. Do you see the difference? It's really important. So that's the beauty of a New American Standard or an ESV. Because I'll make fun sometimes of ESV, just because I grew up with New American Standard, uh, and ESV is new, so I can, I can, it's a wonderful, fantastic translation. All right? I, don't, I don't think it's any better than the NAS, but some people really love the reading of it and they feel like it just flows so much more. Although you'll find that in most places, it's like 16% difference, like one word. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm sticking with what I got because if it's only two word difference, you know, I'm not changing everything I know. But and the NIV even generally is pretty good, although it's one further step away. There, there are more interpretations built into the NIV. It's just that very often, if you have this NIV 84, they make good interpretations. Very often, they've gotten it right. And sometimes it really does help. So you, if you're gonna read the NIV, what you do is you're reading really to get a better, it's almost like a little bit like a, getting a commentary. So again, just a little bit more like that, and you, but it's not telling you that, right? So, so they're making interpretational choices and you're not sure what they are. Again, it's pretty reliable, right? But so I encourage reading and these, say these four different translations, and I do that all the time. With my Bible reading, I try to read through the Bible every year, not because I'm a big, bad Chris Riser, but because I love the Bible and I want to get the bigger picture all the time. And it's a discipline that I've built over time and has been a tremendous blessing to me. I don't do it so I can check off a box. I don't do it so I can hashtag, look how much I'm reading the Bible. I don't do it so I can tell you here now. But I tell you here now because there are very few things I've ever done in my life that are more beneficial than consistently reading all the way through the Bible. I urge that on you. Do you have to to be spiritual? In one sense, you can be, you can, you can be spiritually minded, but do you, do you need to know all the Bible? Yeah, do you need to have a regular, consistent overview of it? Sure. Will you be more spiritual if you do that wisely and well and don't do it for arrogance or pride? Will, will you have the opportunity to be more spiritual? Yeah, I mean, with a humble heart, with the spirit working, 
I urge you. Those Bible plans are important because they give you an overview of Scripture. It's not sufficient to be reading the bigger picture, though. And some people are like, well, you know, it's just too much reading at one time. Because you're not studying Scripture as you're doing a, a, a Bible plan or you're trying to read the Bible in a year. You're just getting the big over, overview. Then you're going to also have to study, listen to sermons, and dig down into deeper places yourself. But you really need to learn to get through that bigger picture so that you can constantly be immersing yourself in the scriptures. Because I'm telling you, if you were to start now, you know, at 12, 13, 17, 18, reading the Bible consistently through year after year after year, again, if you had a humble heart that loved the Lord and wanted to seek him, guys, it would, it would change you. And, and, and you, would, you would have the kind of, of, of foundation that you need. You wouldn't be easily fooled. You would know what's going on in the Bible. You, you would be fami- sermons would mean so much more to you because you were familiar with overall themes. And no, you didn't ever go to Bible school and you didn't go to seminary. And you didn't, you, just reading the Bible is the first place to start. I would add to that memorizing the Bible. That's why we do our quizzing. Quizzing is coming up. Do I think you need to Bible quiz so that you can walk around and say, I memorized a lot of the Bible and I'm more spiritual than you? No, anathema on that, don't do it. But if you, can, if you wanna memorize it and say, you know what, I just personally wanna know a lot of scripture. I mean, that's why I started Bible quizzing. Because when I was in high school, I had a youth pastor who said, look, I'm gonna challenge you to memorize the Bible. And I did. And it was the most beneficial thing that had ever happened in my life to memorize scripture and to, to make the connections. And I, so when I started youth ministry and then when I came here, I said, you know what? It has nothing to do with my being more spiritual than anybody else or if you memorize, we're a more spiritual youth group than anybody else. I wanna give this benefit to somebody else. So, I, so we built a program that said, oh, we're going to encourage you to memorize. If you don't do it, are you less spiritual? No. But could you put yourself in a position to be more spiritual as it were, to know more about God by memorizing? You could. And could you do that without Bible quizzing? Sure. But will you probably? No. Almost certainly you're not gonna memorize the book of the Bible unless somebody challenges you to do that, put a little competition around it and, and make it a lot of fun. So again, you don't have to do that. And if you do it for the wrong reason, it's not particularly helpful, although it's actually more helpful. I mean, think about it. Would it be better off to do Bible quizzing this year than to add an extra three hours for video games? Yeah, I think so, right? Even, even shooting hoops, which is better than video games, you know, playing some basketball. I think that'd be great, do that too. But, but see, you, you couldn't possibly do a better thing with your time than ingest and memorize scripture. So again, some, some things to think about, reading the Bible consistently, because then you start to know these things. Reading it with a good translation, and where I started with this rant, was that I love to read through in different translations because it just gives me a different sense as I read it through. And, and yet, because the words are different, and the, but the sense, I think, is all pointing towards the same concept. How can there be so many translations? Of, because these words, really, they mean very similar things. Sometimes they give a different shade of what this Greek word actually meant, and that's very helpful. Because a Greek word doesn't always translate directly over into one English word. There are several English words you could use to translate it, as we'll see. And each of those has a, a part of the meaning that can be important. And so, yeah, don't, don't, do the, don't, don't do the message. Um, let's switch this to, can uh, I grab the, let's try the, uh, it says mess, not message. Uh, KJV. I also find, where's my KJV? Try King James. King James version. All right, so if I want to add that in there, all right, save that and go back to here. All right, so then I have the KJV. It says, I, brethren, came to you, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you, that, no, that's, that's not bad, all right? So, most, you know, even some of these, you know. 
Howbeit, we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. Or that, that's a little harder, right? So you're trying to figure out how those words fit and even the structure of the grammar. When it was written, this is how people talked. And these are the words that they used, but we, we don't, right? So what a good translation does is bring it, the words that we use and, and, and put the phrasing in the order that we understand, even as it re- directly reflects the words that are in the New American, or in the, in the Greek text. Now, if you go to Blue Letter Bible, let's do that real quick. Oh, I keep getting off of that. Uh, so we go here. Let's say for, uh, I'm, on, I'm on Kings, 2 Kings 18.4, my tool version. Um, so, um, back to number 20. Let's say I want to do this kind of thing. So, so I'm going to go to my tools again. Go to tools and go to Bibles. This is cool because then I've got the translations there right there. You can do what I just did with my fancy Logos, Logos program, uh, and it gives you that verse in all the different translations, right? KJV, and the Lord said to Moses, make thee a fiery serpent, set it upon a pole, it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, it shall have. It just sounds a little bit more magisterial when you say it that way, doesn't it? Uh, and yet, again, not necessarily as understandable. And then the, this has different good translations. Again, the New Living Translation is going to be more of a pair more of a paraphrase. The NIV, I'm not sure which edition they use. I think it's the 84 ESV. Most of these are solid translations. Um, I do have a bunch in there. Oh, and by the way, then they have, if you'll read a little Hebrew, there you go. And we got Hebrew readers here. And then Greek, you're like, I thought the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. It is, but then there's a translation of the Hebrew into Greek. So that's called the LXX or the Septuagint, right? The Septuagint, sometimes you might call it, uh, which can be very helpful for us. It's, a, it's an old translation. It's a couple hundred years before the time of Christ is when 70, the, the legend is, 70 scholars sat down uh, to put it together. LXX, 70. All right, so you can also look at translations. And so you ought to have a good translation and you ought to use those. Most of you do. Uh, and so make sure you get one. By the way, the John MacArthur Study Bible is not, a tr- is, not a, is not a separate translation. It has New American Standard or English Standard or something like that. It's, it's, so it's the same translation. It just has a lot of his notes. But remember that his notes aren't inspired, right? When R.C. Sproul was alive, he used to take out a, a John MacArthur Study Bible and go, that's a great Bible, except I can't find the text here. Uh, because you'll have on, on a page, right, you'll have three verses and then the commentary. We'll talk about commentaries later. If it's good commentary, I think it's really helpful. A good study Bible is really helpful as long as the commentary is good. But it's like the message. The message, it's not like the message. The John MacArthur Study Bible is, is, the commentary is actually good. But the problem is if you just give the Bible translation that is really kind of the commentary, Bible translation all in one, then you can't ever make the determination what were they interpreting and how did they misinterpret it, right? You see what I mean? That's why Bible translations are so important. All right, back to what we're doing here. Use a good translation. Sentences should be able to be understood in today's language. The text reflects the original manuscripts. And as I said, the word for word, New American Standard, ESV, uh, and New King James and King James, those are kind of word for word translations. The NIV is what we might call a phrase by phrase or dynamic equivalence. And then you have like the message and the living translation. Those are paraphrases. People are just kind of putting in in their own words on the basis of what they think the meaning actually is. As, as I just did, we, you can compare translations. 
because that's really helpful because, and you'll do that in your study this afternoon, because it just might give you a, a little better insight as to how a whole group of really scholarly dudes uh, and dudettes at times sat down to say, what did they think that meant? And they probably did a better job than you do, right? So, so when they're, the translations, here's the sweet thing, you can generally trust them. And when, you, when they use an English word, if the translation is relatively recent, when they use an English word and it has a meaning in English, that's generally what the Greek word meant too. Humble, we kind of have a pretty good idea in, in, you know, in English what humble means. And so if you look up 15 Greek commentaries uh, on, uh, and, and you know, look at Greek dictionaries on humble, it all pretty much means considering someone else more important than you. Right? So sometimes, as we'll see, you can get deep things out of word studies. A lot of times, if you have a good translation, all you just get is what that means and you already knew that. So I want to encourage you with that, right? You don't have to find deep, dark meanings of words. Usually word studies, as we'll see, are just about immersing yourself in more places in Scripture where that same idea or that same word is used. Right, you want to use good definitions. When you do this, it is okay, generally, to start with a good, regular, quote, quote, unquote, dictionary. The issue, though, is you really do need a dictionary that isn't super modern because, man, they are changing the meaning of words. And, and a lot of times, it's fascinating, the older dictionaries, I think if you were here when Ron was doing uh, on, on Noah Webster and his uh, translation or his dictionary, uh, that those, those definitions, a lot of those were biblical definitions. So that's like the, what, 1865, is it? Uh, that dictionary, some of your parents have that massive you know, thing in, in your house. You can get it online, you can look at it. Uh, a good English dictionary is a great place to start for a definition of a word. You just can't stop there. Because it is true that sometimes the biblical word doesn't mean the same or it has nuances that the way we view that in English now doesn't. And again, we'll look at all this in, the, in our Blue Letter Bible in a minute. You want to move to a good Bible dictionary uh, when you do this. All right, let's actually do that in, in Blue Bible real quick. And we'll do a lot of this also after lunch. But um, So go to your Blue Letter. Oops, I just lost my... Come back. Okay, so let's, let's change our uh, reference here. And let's go to Ephesians. I'll go, first, I'll go to 2 Timothy 4, 3, and 4. 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 4. Okay, so, so, there, so there you have it. All right, we're going to go to format view. Let's get your tools. Uh, all right, so we're going to look up, we're going to look at some of these words. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their, uh, to their own desires. So we want to know maybe what sound doctrine is. What, what, what does that mean? All right, and you're looking at it, it's two words in the English. All right, so let's look at our dictionaries. So go to the dictionaries tab. And we're going to look at, oops, actually, that's the wrong thing. Sorry. We're going to interlinear. Go back. This is helpful. Uh, go to tools again. Go to the, the thing called interlinear. All right, so up at the top, interlinear. What that's going to do is gonna, it's going to, it shows you the Greek. You've got some Greek readers here. Uh, Estai is for uh, in, in the last days, so kairos days. Uh, that men will, so, he, and here this word here is what we're going to be looking at, didask, 
didascarius. That is actually the word sound doctrine. All right, so we're going to look down. All right, so the time, that's one word, kairos, will come. That's just a to be verb. All right, astai there, a me is the verb. When they will not, all right, that's one, uh, endure. That's a word we might look at. We'll look at that in a second. All right, sound doctrine. Really, this comes in two words, all right? So if you have the, the this is called a transliteration into English, hygiano. Now, just what does that sound like? Hygiano or hygiano or hygiano. What, what, what's it sound like? It does sound like hygiene, all right? So that's interesting to think, well, maybe, and didascala, that probably doesn't mean much to you. So let's look then at what this actually means. So you've, if you click on the G5198, oops, wrong, G5198. So it's, there's a, it's right next to the word, you see it there. All right. It's going to give me, notice it's hogiaino, that's how they say it, all right. But it gonna, it's going to give you a definition to be sound, to be well, to be in good health. So sound doctrine might also be translated healthy doctrine, right? Again, I'm not saying that's the best way to translate it, but simply that's kind of the idea underneath it. And if something is healthy, what is it? It's good for you. Good for you doctrine, the, the good stuff doctrine, the not bad doctrine, the doctrine you need to actually grow. See, sound doctrine. So sound didn't necessarily, now, it's using, so when the New American Standard translates sound, how are they using the word sound? Firm, maybe, might be one, all right? Maybe the idea of pure, all right? Yeah? Reliable, right, reliable is probably the kind of the best idea. The reliable firm doesn't move, it doesn't come out from underneath your feet, but that's not, a, that's not necessarily, we don't use the word like that a lot, do we? Right, because so, we, we, we might, but so anyway, so when you look at the definition then, this is one that it can actually help you a bit when you're trying to think, okay, what is sound doctrine? Well, healthy, that which is, which is maybe pure. I think, and, this, and this is going to give you uh, kind of here with his strongs. Um, what, a guy, what Augustus Strong did was he looked at all the Greek and all the verbs and all, all the words, and he then attached a number to that particular Greek word. Then he looked at the King James Version first, and that's, that's what he used, and he tied he's every place where that particular Greek word is used in the King James, he would, he would then say, this is the Greek number of that particular word because oftentimes a different English word is used to translate the Greek word underneath it. And so he said, look, underneath the English translation, here is, here are the, here's the Greek word that's being used. And so those strong numbers are, if you're looking at a, at a Bible that had all these numbers in it with the English words, if it had a number by, a, a Strong's number, it says this English word, the, the number that's by it, that's the actual Greek word that's underneath it. Then you can look up in your Strong's concordance, you can go, oh, what's the Greek word underneath that word? And then you could get a hold of the original languages even though you don't know Greek. Because this took him 80 years to do. And on his deathbed, he pretty much, someone actually had to finish it out for him. And now you can do all of this. You can look at all of these things with a click of a button on your, you know, and you can instantly access the original language when it took him 85 years to try to put that in the hands of people. And guys, that was used for 100 years. That's what I used when I was originally studying when I wanted to know what the Greek was because I didn't know Greek at the time. 
And so then I had to look and figure out what is the Greek word underneath that and then what's the definition. So here's the idea, to be sound, to be well, to be in good health, right? Used of Christians, so it gives you some of the ideas of the senses of how it's used and then some of the verses where it's used. And if you mouse over those, notice it shows you the verse. Now it's not super helpful because it shows you in King James, all right? But again, if you go to that verse uh, in your, in your, when you do your cross-referencing, it'll show you in uh, New American Standard. If you go down here. So if you, what's that? Yeah, yeah, if you go down, it, yeah, if, if you go down, it has them all. Uh, so here you go. So it, it shows you a strong number. And then it gives you all the places in the New Testament where that underlying Greek word, right, agiano, is used. So Jesus answered said to them, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. So notice, the Greek word underneath that is the same word. And yet in 2 Timothy, how was it translated? It was translated sound. In Luke 5.31, it's translated well. Why? Because it's talking about those who are actually sick, right? The, the metaphor Jesus is using is people who are well don't need a doctor. Those who are not well are the ones that need the doctor. And actually, this is a, he has a spiritual meaning to this, if you are unwell spiritually. Okay, so again, this gives you where this word is used. Oh, it's also translated, notice here, good. They found the slaves in good health, right? Interesting, you received them back, safe and sound. This phrase here translates that one word, agiano, safe and sound. Now, I'm not trying to tell you that the Greek word or the, the meaning of sound in 2 Timothy 4 means all of these things. Don't misunderstand. You can't look and say, oh, it actually means this, 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 and this. No, these just help you narrow in when he's talking about doctrine, which one of these meanings is going to be most applicable, right? So that's what you're learning when you go down through and, and by the way, this is different. And again, we'll go back over this and over this. So if you're getting a little lost, that's fine. We'll go back over. This is different than a cross-reference. When you cross-reference a verse, it's by the concept, by the idea that's in the verse. Someone says, look, there's a bunch of other verses in the Bible that seem to have the same idea. Sometimes they do and sometimes they don't, right? Sometimes it's just a key English word that's being used. These verses, though, are the verses where this actual Greek word is being used and this is how you begin to understand what the word means in bigger sense. And by the way, you can be really smart because the people that put together Bible dictionaries that say, okay, here's the Greek word and here's what it means, you know what they did? They found all the places in the Bible, in, in the Greek Bible where that word was used and the context, by the context, what it meant and that's how they wrote their dictionary. And you can actually do all the work that they did in about five minutes and it took them sometimes 50, 60 years to do. You can go down and look at all the places where that Greek word is used and build your own definition just in your own head. In general, the word seems to carry this idea. It's really cool. And, and I love this part of it because you're reading a bunch of verses of scripture. You're actually reading it. And even though all those meanings you're not importing into your word, you're just getting a much more full orbed view of scripture itself and what words actually mean. I love this part of study because it just helps you read a ton of verses. And that's what you want. The more you study when you're actually in the Bible, the better off you are in understanding what the Bible means. Okay, so that's just a brief exposure to that. We'll do more of that, and I need to finish out here so you can get some lunch. Uh, so we'll try to get done. All right, so we're gonna bridge this grammar gap using the words, uh, how it was used in the original language, how the word or concept was used in the Bible, right? So those, all the places where the Greek word is used in the Bible, well, that's helping you know how the biblical writers used it. But it is helpful to know, all right, in, in that kind of Greek, we call it Koine Greek that the New Testament is written in, 
what did that word mean in culture, in the secular culture? Oftentimes it has a different meaning in the Bible, but that can help you understand what it means. Because a lot of times there's a Greek word that's used that Paul uses. It's the only place he uses it. You're like, well, how can I then look at other places in the Bible to know what it means? You can't. So you're drawing, going to draw some information perhaps out of the culture to know, okay, this is how they used it. And then look at the context of how Paul used it. And then you're going to look at the usage of, by that writer in the same book. How does he use that word? And again, how does he use the Greek word? Because he didn't use the English word. That's why, you need, that's why you're looking at all the different places where that Greek word is used, because where that author used it, he often will use it in, with the same meaning. And how it's used by other writers in the Bible. And by the way, for those of you who are, have some idea of you know, one more step here, that's why if you're in the, using the Greek of the New Testament, and you want to find out how biblical writers used a word or at least how the concepts were thought to be used in the Old Testament that's written in Hebrew. That's why that LXX, that Hebrew Bible that was translated into Greek by those who are trying to use biblical definitions, you can look at a Greek word all right, in, in the Old Testament to get a feel for, all right, here's how, here's how the Hebrew meaning of the word relates to the Greek word, which has to do with how the Bible writers were using it. Just put that on the shelf if that didn't mean anything to you. Uh, usage by writers outside the Bible. Again, we want to know some of those things, how it's used. And then consider the context. Remember, did you see, did you see all the meanings of you know, how that word was used, right? So there's a lot of different ways one Greek word could be used. Well, you want to narrow it down by looking at the context of your particular passage. So the sound goes along with doctrine. So the idea of what teaching is, doctrine essentially is is just simply has to do with information being taught, all right? And really, a system of information. We didn't look at that word. We, you, you know, we can go back and do that later. But doctrine, then, is a system of teaching, a series of, uh, you know, kind of a, a whole group of teachings. The idea is doctrine is that. So sound doctrine, so you're going to narrow it down through, again, the context of that particular passage. How is that word used in the sentence? How is that sentence used in the paragraph or book? How is that idea, that word, that sentence used in the entire Bible? So you're going to expand out. So you see there's a lot of study that needs to be done if you're going to try to figure out what a word means. But again, let me tell you, in general, a New American Standard or an ESV, when you look at the word and see the English word and understand the English word, you have a pretty good idea already of what it actually means. All right? I want to just encourage you with that. When I was translating Greek when I was in seminary, they said, look, make it sound pretty much like the New American Standard, and you got it made. Right? Now, I wasn't able to do that exactly because then they knew. Right? I actually had a, I had, I had a couple of the things they had us do, I had those memorized. And so I, I recognized them, and so I was like, oh, cool. So I just wrote out the New American Standard. No, that didn't fly. <laughs> because it wasn't exactly the New American Standard. It just was supposed to be close to it because it's a word-for-word -word translation. All right. Uh, okay, done. Wow, we did it. We made it through. Uh, yeah, you're right. Yes, we're glad to be done. Um, let me let me pray. For, let me pray for lunch. Uh, then we'll have to find out if it's ready. Don't go rushing over there trying to eat before it's done. Uh, we'll take an hour for lunch. So at one o'clock, be back here. 